Good evening and welcome to Esoteric Lighthouse. We are a group of free and accepted Masons from regular and recognized Masonic Grand Lodges focused on the esoteric and occult and philosophical lessons found in Freemasonry. This being a public forum, our views and interpretations. Welcome to Esoteric Lighthouse. We are a group of free and accepted Masons from regular and recognized Masonic Grand Lodges focused on the esoteric and occult and philosophical lessons found in Freemasonry. Brothers, this could being you a public your, uh, our views and interpretations of the Esoteric Lighthouse. We are a group of free and accepted Masons from regular and recognized Masonic Grand Lodges focused on the esoteric and occult. All right, sorry about that. Let me try to reintroduce. Uh, we are a group of free and accepted Masons from a regular and recognized Masonic Grand Lodges focused on the esoteric and occult and philosophical lessons found in Freemasonry. This being a public forum, our views and interpretations are not legal or official statements or opinions of any Grand Lodges or Masonic bodies we hold membership with. All opinions and thoughts and interpretations are solely that of the individual panelists. All right, good evening again. Uh, like I said, this is Esoteric Lighthouse. We uh, have a treat for you. We have our own brother and member, the illustrious Charles Watson and his lecture, The Stone Square. And take us away, sir. All right, thanks a lot. Let me grab, let me go ahead and share out my screen real quick. step back here. All right. So we're going to step out here one more time. So thanks a lot, uh, Brother Williams, for that uh, fabulous introduction. And for the disclaimer, my name is Brother Charles D. Watson. Um, today, the lecture is titled The Stone Square, one of my favorite uh, topics to talk about. I'm going to try to move through my slide deck. I got about 15 slides. I'm going to try to take about 15, 20 minutes of your time. And then we're going to open it up for the panelists to talk and, and to receive any questions that um, might be tabled uh, as, as, as being an output from the input of this lecture. So the things I'm going to cover fairly quickly is the history of stones in masonry, alchemy, and the three Abrahamic faiths, uh, stones and squares in general. Uh, also, what is a stone square? And again, I know you guys thought maybe that the Brothers at Esoteric Lighthouse was going to actually teach you how to chop up some stones today, right? So um, where we're coming from is from an esoteric perspective. Uh, and these different schools of thought, they use uh, different storylines and symbols to talk about the human experience and the human condition. So we're going to re relate uh, stone squaring to the human experience and the human condition. We're going to uh, go through the process of squaring your stone. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about light versus darkness or internal grappling. We're going to look, touch on morality, vice and virtue, balance and equilibrium, which is the ultimate goal, uh, happiness and misery. We're going to talk a little bit about virtue, vice, uh, talk a little bit about sin and how it is synonymous with deficiency and excess. We're going to talk a little bit about temptation, and then we're going to wrap this on up. All right. So I'm going to start off with... Um, a slide that I always use in all my lectures when I'm lecturing in masonry, when I'm lecturing esotericism and, and other schools of thought that deals with uh, speculative viewpoints. Uh, interpreting symbols from an esoteric viewpoint is like fingerprints. Each seeker will have their own unique perspective. There is no definitive meaning to any of them, but rather a plethora of meanings among which one is free to pick and choose. 
Esoteric teachings was never meant to be dogmatic. Uh, if at least a portion of this lecture proves informative, illuminating and encourages further exploration, the humble objective of this lecture is attained. So I have a picture over here of um, three walnuts. And um, what we normally do throughout life is we study these different schools of thought. And we look at the storylines and the symbols. We look at the outer side of these walnuts and that's how we study. We study from the outside. We don't take time to go ahead and crack open these nuts and go in there and nourish ourselves with the intellectual and moral truths that uh, exist. That is the goal of esotericism, to not just look at things from the outside. As I always say, we're not here just to lick nuts and there's no pun intended in that, <laughs> okay? Uh, we're here to crack open these nuts and go in there and nourish ourselves. We don't want to suffer from what I call the truth seekers malnutrition. We wanted to know, actually nourish ourselves. So again, this is my speculative viewpoint on squaring stones and how some of these stones could be speculatively looked at in these different schools of thought. Let's start off the history in um, three Abrahamic faiths, how they kind of talk about stones in, in, in squares and so forth. So if we look at Judaism, we go back in, in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, um, we have a, black, a breastplate that was used to communicate with God. The breastplate was originally worn by Aaron, elder brother of Moses. Each stone represented God's people and the divine breastplate's design was ordered to be squared. So if you, some of you may or may not have known that the priests back in, in uh, those days actually wore breastplates, but they had stones in them. And these stones were um, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel which were God's people, which we could say God's people would be a righteous people. And also the plate, uh, if you go back and you read the scripture, it was ordered for that plate not to be uh, a, a, a circle. It wasn't ordered for it to be triangular. It was ordered to be squared. We go into Christianity a little bit. Psalms 118.22, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Um, this is known to be speaking uh, about Jesus. Uh, some will debate that it, 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 uh, it didn't. However, uh, in Christian teachings, uh, this is known to be speaking about uh, Jesus Christ. In Islam, we see Muslims believe that the black stone, there's a stone in Islam, uh, was originally pure and dazzling white, but has since turned black because of the sins of the people who touched it. Its black color is deemed to symbolize the essential spiritual virtue of detachment and poverty for God and the extinction of ego required to progress towards God. So as we could see these three schools of thoughts here, we say you should be, this is a speculative way of kind of looking at some of these things instead of literally, we could say you should be square and right when coming before God for divine direction, because this breastplate, the priest had to have it on before they entered into uh, any type of conversation uh, with deity. Uh, the, and we have here on Psalms 118.22, uh, Jesus was depicted using a stone. Uh, we know Jesus had a divine character. Also over here, uh, we have what's called the Kaaba. This is a where they actually house the black stone. Uh, Blackstone, again, we have an example of transformation, something going from its 
uh, higher self to its lower self. And sometimes you see stones being used, uh, something going from its, um, its lower self to its higher self. Something else to note here is that the black stone is, is housed in what we would call a cube. And if you study geometry, you would know that the completion or the perfection of a square is actually a cube. That means if you extend a square out in all directions, when it's fully grown and it's perfected, it will become a cube. Masonry. In Freemasonry, we see the use of the rough and perfect ashlars, as you can see down here, the rough ashlar, which are just stones and perfect ashlar. These two stones are a symbolic metaphor for progress and mark a path for moral and intellectual self-improvement. Rough stone, we can say this rough is symbolic of chaos, man in his natural state, ignorant, uncultivated, rough, unpolished and unaware of his potential. We have a thing in masonry called common gavel. The common gavel is actually um, you see it over here, is an aspect of our nature used to divest our hearts and conscience of all the vices and superfluities of life. We'll talk a little bit about what vices and superfluities are, the people who don't know. Uh, perfect stone, uh, right? we have right here, uh, we can look at that as order. Man who is educated, refined, smooth, squared, and made suitable for the builder's use. Um, inside of masonry, um, a mason can become what we would call, for lack of a better word, a president of his group or his lodge. And once he finishes that term as being a president, he picks up a title called what we call a past master. And he receives a block of instruction dedicated to the practice of squaring stones. Um, a lot of my brothers out there that are past masters will have a real grip on what I mean when I'm talking about squaring stones. Also, we see different types of stones in masonry. We have what's called a cornerstone. Um, we went over the rough and perfect ashlars, uh, cubic stone. We also have a keystone. Uh, the way that I'm presenting this here today is these stones deal with the human condition and the human experience, meaning the cornerstone we know is the beginning of something, right? We can see that the ashlers were actually um, going from one state to another, and that's life itself. You start off as a kid, you become a man, then you become an old man. So it's a transformative type um, um, depiction here. Then we have revelation. Uh, the cubic stone uh, reveals something uh, to masons. And then the keystone is uh, used as a completion. So here we have beginning, transformation, revelation, and completion. Alchemy. And so what I'm doing here is I'm just going through touching on this, just these different schools of thought that use stones and rocks and squares uh, to teach lessons that can be used during our travels in life. So in alchemy, we have, here we go again, another stone, the philosopher's stone was a magic substance which was capable of converting cheap metals, lead into gold. So here we are, something of a lower state transformed into a higher state. You see the pattern here that we're seeing with, um, with the stones as they're used as symbols throughout these different schools of thought. The search for the philosopher's stone could be construed to be the symbol of the quest for higher states of life. Here's the actual symbol of the philosopher's stone, one of the symbols of them. This is what it was said to have looked like. Um, then we have what's called cinnabar. Cinnabar is a mercury. 
silver sulfide, yellow mineral that unites sulfur and mercury. The completion of this magnum opus, because that's what the alchemists called this journey from going from a lower self to a higher self. And they use these stones to um, actually teach this transformative type state was signaled by reddening of the mixture. This being the reason for naming the philosopher's stone red lion or great, or great red water. And as you can see over here, here's a picture of cinnabar. Cinnabar, um, there was a time where cinnabar and the philosopher's stone were used synonymously. And if you look at one of the uh, alchemical symbols of cinnabar, you will see that it's 33. Um, depicting completion in a lot of schools of thought. So, you know, Jesus completed his journey when he was 33. Also, um, in, in, in masonry, it's art, people will argue that the 33rd degree is the last and final degree of a mason. Uh, if you ever want a good argument between masons, bring, bring that uh, topic up. I do want to thank my good brother, Michael Williams, who about a year or two ago brought this alchemical symbol to my attention and uh, change a, a, a lot of thinking up here. Right, stone square, stone. Characteristics of a good building stone. So now we're talking about just stones in general now. A good building stone has strength, durability, hardness, toughness. It has to be moldable or ease of, of being able to be worked. Resistance to absorption, weather and fire resistant. Now, when you're looking at this, you can easily tell why it was a good idea to use stones to describe characteristics uh, of the human, human uh, nature. Again, strength and character, durability, hardness, ease of working. Uh, your character has to be moldable. If you think you know it all, you think you don't need to grow, then you, you wouldn't be a proper stone, right? We all have room to grow into a higher aspect of ourselves. Resistance to absorption. You don't want every little thing coming into you. You want to be able to use some degree of logic of reason um, before processing stuff in. Weather and fire resistant. You ever heard, this is, to me, the stone should be able to resist pressure. You ever heard, it says when it gets really hot in the kitchen, you're either going to stay in or get out. Uh, so you need to be able to withstand pressure. So again, it, it's really um, easy for me to see why the stone uh, and, and as square as we'll see here later, was used uh, to describe the characteristics of the human nature. Many cultures and religions use stones to symbolize a divine nature or transformation. In some places in the scripture and ancient writings, a stone is used to describe strength, durability, and resiliency in a person's character. So again, we're, 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 I'm walking you somewhere here. I'm trying to get you somewhere. We're not just talking about stones and squares from a literal perspective. Okay, many myths, fables, and stories use stones to symbolize the obstacles a character must overcome to complete their quest. Square, what is a square being viewed at, viewed as throughout the world? The square is looked at in some areas of the world as the number four, and the square has always epitomized the material world. Uh, in some schools you'll see the four cardinal points being associated with um, north, south, east, west. You have the four seasons, which is winter, spring, summer, and fall. You have the four elements. 
and then you have the four states of matter, all going back to the square. And these different schools of thought, when you've seen the square, you automatically thought these four cardinal points, the four seasons, four elements, the four states of matter, and you automatically depicted it or associated it with the material world. The four-sided square is an age-old symbol of the material world where the physical body is born and dies. Have you ever noticed how heavily our material world rests on the principle of the square? Just look around. You can look at buildings, doors, windows, tiles, furniture, books. Most objects are predominantly based on a rectangular shape. Square continue. There could be nothing truer than a perfect square, a right angle. I always use angle, a synonym to angle is direction. So when something is, is rightly angled, it's moving in the right direction. Hence the square has become an emblem of perfection or maturity. The square represents the body, which is the physical and temporary, the symbol of earth and the realm of the material. In the depths of the body lie our lowest desires and carnal appetites, gives birth to our vices and superfluities, which is the lower aspect of our nature. Our virtues provide us with the symbolic ladder that leads us to the higher aspect of our nature. Now, I know you're saying, well, come on, man, when are you going to get to this stone square stuff? Well, I'm trying to lay the foundation for you. I'm walking you right into this next slide. And I'm gonna tell you what a stone square is. A stone square is a teacher, a liberator, a freedom fighter. A stone square brings order out of chaos. Just that simple, order out of chaos. As we talked about a little bit earlier with the stones, the stones, have been synonymous with divine nature and direction as we saw here with the high priest, uh, transformation as we saw with the black stone, uh, strength and durability and resiliency and character as we see um, Jesus was used um, as being the cornerstone. The square is also um, looked at as the material world, the body, perfection, uh, a right angle, uh, it's associated with truth and moral excellence. So a stone square, they enlighten and teach people that they have a sovereign right to rule over their own inner kingdom. So this, this squaring of stones, again, isn't about us taking a hammer and beating on something. It's actually a process that goes on within um, the human nature or the human character. They come back to free those who are suffering from the oppression of ignorance, chaos. They understand that they must first do the work on themselves. An old school of thought I used to study in, we had a term called self-resaving, meaning they're gonna do the work on themselves first. They're gonna square their own stones and then they're gonna go out in the world as these, these teachers, these liberators or freedom fighters to go out and help others square their stones. They understand that we are all fighting an internal and external holy war, an Armageddon, a grappling of contraries. Here's a saying from uh, Carl Jung that says, in all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, a secret order. If you study a lot of the secret orders out there, the, the goal of those secret orders was to bring order out of disorder or to bring order out of chaos. Let's talk a little bit about light versus darkness because we, we, I've walked you right into what a stone square is. This is someone that's dealing with, you know, basically, character building, 
building themselves and then teaching others to do the same thing. But let's talk a little bit about why that's important. Well, we're gonna go back to ancient man. Uh, ancient man, or let's just say mankind. Uh, back in the day, they didn't have like big screen TVs. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have DVDs and all that other good stuff. They didn't have textbooks. So they pretty much entertained themselves. Uh, their first textbooks was nature itself. Their first scripture, the first word of God was all nature. They learned everything that they needed to know to survive early on from studying their surroundings, studying nature. Uh, we call this the ancient war of light against darkness taking place in the heavens. They witnessed this. They witnessed light and darkness or good and bad. All of that was studied by them. They observed it again. They did not like us today where we can just sit around and watch TV all day or play games. They're playing games and watching TV was studying um, their surroundings. Observing the heavens was key to early man's survival. Their harvests and their hunting cycles were based upon this. Again, there was no Walmart. There was no super Walmart to go, go to. So they had to plan really careful on how to harvest. And all this had to do deal with light and darkness. This had to do with summer and winter, right? Uh, in the different seasons. The sun rising and setting was very important to them. Uh, they began to associate darkness with something bad. You know, they might've been out, um, your friend Jeff might've been out walking around at night and, and became prey to some lion or some other animal that's out there that they couldn't even see. So they understood that at nighttime, was something that wasn't so good. And they understood in the daytime, they could see better. Um, and it was something, uh, they associated that with something good. They understood that when the sun came back um, throughout the year, that it was a good thing that, that you know, the harvest could start, um, they could start planting things. All this was associated with something good. And then when the sun left, um, they could associate, associated that with something that was, was bad because, you know, things started getting really cold and um, you know, the grounds weren't where they could plant and so forth. So again, this goes into what we call as above, so below. They studied what was above them and they realized that um, there was a dichotomy of good or what we call light and evil or darkness within themselves. They understood that there was an eternal grappling of, co of contraries or opposites. They saw this in the heavens. Uh, if you look at it here, I'm gonna go through this really, really quick. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many people don't know why there is a summer and why there is a winter. So if you see the, the earth here, it's tilting forward. And if you tilt the, if you tilt your hand forward and you had a flame right here, the closer you'd get to it, the hotter the tip of your fingers would be. Well, we live in the Northern Hemisphere. And so that's what causes the summer. Now, if you go back like that, right, that you're further away from, from that hot source. And so it wouldn't be as hot. And that's what we call winter. We're calling that winter and, and uh, our summer and winter solstice. So if we start right here in the summer solstice as the earth tilts like that in its initiatory state and it starts to pass around, right? It goes through season. It will pass through these different seasons. It'll come to what we call a balance point, uh, equilibrium point. And we call that an equinox. And as it continues to pass and it gets to a point where it's all the way back now, it's, the Northern hemisphere is further away from furthest away from the sun. At this point, um, it begins, it'll start its journey back and it'll start to raise itself. So it goes from an initiatory state here to a passing and it's also going uh, to, a, to a raising state here. 
What is the goal of this? What did they see and they observed it? They saw balance, they saw order, they saw harmony in, in nature itself. The internal grappling that exists within us. Um, when we started to study this, at some point, it birthed a study, um, what we'd call morality. Morality is the study of those thoughts, words, and actions that are right, which we say true and wrong, which we say it's false. It is necessary for the guidance of a man as instinct is for the guidance of an animal. It's really what separates us from the animal kingdom. And there was an ancient civilization that kind of understood that and they actually left it for us to, to uh, study in stone. Um, so you see here the Sphinx um, that's over in Egypt right now today, you see the Sphinx, the lower half of it is, is an animal and the upper half of it is the actual um, face of, of, of a person of a man. And so at the end of the day, it's showing that the this is the higher aspect of your of your nature and the animal instinct of you being the uh, lower aspect of your nature. And that in, at the end of the day, we, humans, we are animals. So there are those aspects of us that we share with the animal kingdom. And I always tell, tell brothers that um, if you don't think we're animals, when you're out eating with your wife sometime, watch when, what she does when she finishes eating that, that chicken bone, how she gnaws on it really, really good and getting all the meat off of it. Um, we are all animals at the lowest aspect of our nature. When we are introduced to morality, then we can rise up to the higher aspect of ourselves. Vices and superfluities. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Our patterns of wrong thoughts and behaviors based on very low moral standards, being substandard behavior. Virtue is a pattern of Right thoughts, words, and behaviors based on high moral standards or excellence. If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, 22, it says, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Literally, this school of thought is trying to help um, humans understand that there is an aspect of your nature that is good and an aspect of your nature that is evil. At the base of your character is the potential to do good and evil, leading to happiness or misery. And I always like to um, share this with, with folks when, I, when I'm doing this type of lecture is that you are the sole controller. Um, your actions determine if you're gonna experience heaven here on earth or hell here on earth, right? So, and if you're a person that leans more to living a virtuous life, you're probably gonna experience more of uh, what we call blessings or heaven. And if you're one that leans more to uh, living uh, a life of, of vice, you're gonna give yourself um, hell or misery here on earth. Harmony, beauty, and equilibrium. You remember we were talking about having that balance in life and you might say, why balance? Why can't I just do good? Because we live in a world of the grappling of contraries. There's no such thing as doing all good. There's no such thing as doing all bad. It's always going to swing. The best that you could do in life is to find you a mean, a balance, something that brings you harmony and peace in your life. Um, if you look at over here at this chart over here, we have some examples. So a virtue, a virtuous uh, trait would be a person being brave, but a person that's living a life of vice would be in the excess, you would be rash in your behavior. In a deficiency, you would be cowardly. If we go down to, um, you know, a virtue would be being generous to people, but you could also be uh, live a life of vice and be extravagant. You can also um, live a life of vice and the deficiency and actually be stingy um, in your life. 
Equilibrium, equilibrium as a state in which opposing forces or actions are balanced so that one is not stronger or greater than the other. You get that? So we're not trying to be all good. There's no such thing as that. You can't have good if you don't have bad. You can't have right if you don't have wrong in this world, in this state that we live in now. It's called a grappling of contraries. A famous Masonic author, Albert Pike, states equilibrium is the harmony that results from the analog of contraries or opposites. Equilibrium also means a state of intellectual, emotional balance or calmness. The goal is to bring about balance and peace within your life and the world. Remember what I was saying earlier, you have to square your stone first, then go out and help others do it. Temptation, which is associated with having trials in life. Normally when we're tempted, is we're getting ready to get tested. And sin, I'm gonna show you how sin and another way of, of speaking, you can, you can look at it as deficiency and excess. Aristotle portrays the virtue of courage as a mean between the extremes of rashness and excess and cowardness, a, a deficiency. As you can see again here, virtue is what we're trying to get. We're trying to live a virtuous life because it provides a mean for us. You're not gonna always be good. You're not always gonna be bad. You're gonna have to try to find somewhere in the, in the, in the middle there. Virtues are the state of character that is a mean between vices of deficiency and excess. Sin is directly linked to deficiency and or access. So in a religious context, I would say I'm sinning. But in a worldly context, you, you say, well, what is a sin? Um, why do they say gluttony is a sin? Well, if you study what sins are normally depicted as, it's either going to be a deficiency or an access. Let's take the, what we call the seven deadly sins. Envy. Envy is... To be envious of someone, you're suffering from a lack thereof something. And two, if you have a nice car and I don't, I'm envious of you. So that's a deficiency. Sloth, sloth is just laziness. So you, you are choosing not to work at all. You're just lazy. Again, lack thereof, a deficiency. Pride, pride is thinking too much about yourself, right? That's literally what that is. That's an excess. Uh, greed, greed is how much money can you have? You know, what about finding a balance? Um, you know, can you... It's, it's billions of dollars going to make you happy with all the people in the world that's uh, suffering. Anger. Anger basically is losing control of your um, emotions. Again, an excess instead of being virtuous and being temperate in your behavior. Lust. Love, lust is allowing your, um, your, I would say, your sexuality or your sexual organs, um, not being able to control them and keep them at uh, a mean. Gluttony. We all kind of know what gluttony is, and I think we all experience this from time to time. Gluttony is basically eating too much. You know, you want to just eat just enough to nourish yourself. You don't want to, you know, maybe a plate, maybe two plates. But if you're eating three or four plates uh, at every meal, that's just gluttony. That's an excess, and it's a vice in your life. Practicing virtue is how we overcome temptation and ward off sin. Again, sin I'm using, that's a religious term. But at the end of the day, if we're looking at it from a worldly term, is we're just saying it's how you ward off living a life of vice or how to live a, a life um, that is balanced, that has harmony, that has equilibrium in it. In the scriptures in James 1, uh, 12, King James Version of the Bible, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life 
Now, one of the things I want to use again, I'm using different schools of thought to teach here. So if we go back to the Bible and you go back to the Garden of Eden, if you think about it, Adam and Eve had a very harmonious life. They had everything, right? Adam had all the Adam, uh, all the animals. He named them all. They had all they could eat. They had a balance in life. And then they allowed themselves to be tempted, to be tried. And so what happened is they actually wanted more than what they needed, right? And that's why they said, well, there's a tree over there. And, and, and God said, don't touch that tree because you don't need that tree. You already have a balance and you already have equilibrium in your life. But what they did is they said, no, nah, we want more than what we need. And that, is, according to the Bible, was um, the reason for the first sin. So again, as a stone square, remember, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. You're going to be tempted. The key, how do you make it through these tests of life? Last slide here. In conclusion, do the right thing and don't bend to impulses, urges, or desires, but act according to values and principles. Build up your character muscles. How do you do that? By doing good things in the world, um, seeing good examples in others. You know how your mother used to say back in the day, you can't walk through boo-boo with a bunch of people and not smell like boo-boo on the other side? That's what we're saying. Get around people who are, are good examples. Read these different stories that are in these different schools of thought. Uh, they will inspire you. These, these stories, these characters, they were virtuous men. In Mason, we have a character called Grandmaster Hermabith. We have uh, the, the St. John's, uh, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. The Christians in, in their book, you have Jesus. Uh, the Muslims, they have the prophet Muhammad. We got Noah, Job. You know, I could go into other schools of thought as well. Take some of these stories, these examples of these people. And, you know, I'm not saying worship. What I'm saying is, live like they lived. Take the examples that they um, they live by and incorporate it into your life. And at that point, you yourself will become a true stone square. So thank you um, very much for listening to me rattle on about um, squaring stones. This is something that we will all do uh, for the rest of our lives. We will seek to improve ourselves and better ourselves to square our stones. With that, I'll open it up to the floor. Wow, I don't even know what to say after that beautiful lecture, sir. Um, you put into a lot of concept, uh, a lot of concepts into context for me right now because I hadn't looked at like putting the Adam and Eve story with the stones, you know, with squaring a stone, virtues, vices, and superfluities and things like that. I, you know, we touch on it, but we don't really think about it until somebody puts it in our face and you just put it in my face and I don't, you know, and you put me in a good mood right now. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, I was, you know, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say great presentation, bro. Thank you. Uh, Brother Watson, that was a great presentation. I got a, a couple of presentations ready to go. Uh, one regarding a, a book series, which it's just full of stone references. And I took notes of some of the things that you said so that I could refer back. Um, and then I've got another one, uh, uh, practical 
uh, alchemy through the lambdoma and uh, talk about how uh, you can change stones. So your lecture was very, very helpful. Thank you so much. It was well done. Thank you. Thank you. That that's one of the one of the toughest things to do is to um, try to demystify some of the teachings that are out there in these different schools of thought. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, as I was pulling some stuff together, I borrowed from some of my lectures I've already done, and then I was looking for new material and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, you could talk for hours on on a topic like this. Um, but what you find a lot is that these stones and the squares, they're just talking about the human experience and the human condition. Uh, they're not actually talking about an actual rock, you know, and that and that's the thing that um, is really difficult to explain sometimes when people think from a dogmatic perspective that, no, this is exactly what it means because that's what I was taught it meant. You know, uh, some of the things that I've been finding interesting lately, I've been reading up on the 1700s and esotericism and philosophy of the time in the 1700s. When you think about the, the authors of masonry and these esoteric schools of thought, they were during the time of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, they were trying to see change in life and society. So with that, they built into these systems and schools of thought these esoteric teachings based on the, uh, the um, religious forms or uh, religious forms and doctrinal information that was available to them at that time. And when you start looking at it from that eye and the scoring a stone in your mind, they're, they're, taking, they're taking this concept of your mind as being this stone in that time where they couldn't say, hey, this is what you should be thinking instead of going to a dogmatic expression of it. So you, you laid it out and you mapped it out where you, it demystified those layers that were put into those stories. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, what, is, what kind of blows my mind is that a lot of these cultures that were out there are, were thousands of miles apart, but they still ended up telling some of these stories using the things that they could see in nature you know it's you know you got the philosopher's stone you know um all through masonry you got different stones all through um you know islam you have different stones you know they you know it even goes far as that you know i think brother lewis will probably could speak to this a little better than than i can but i think when they go to mecca when there's a journey to mecca there's a throwing of stones um you know it just the entire European royalty is based on the on the premise that you you get sworn on a stone. Wow! Wow! <laughs> the, wow. the stone of the stone of scone. Right! 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 Okay. Yeah. And and also, um, brother Watson, it's interesting because when you were talking about the stone and the, the qualities and the attributes of them and why they were used, one word came to mind for me, which was permanence. You know what I mean? So it, it tells you that even though we're talking about thousands of years ago, those folks understood that when they built something in stone, they designed it to be there for generations. Yeah. They weren't thinking, oh, it's just going to stand for a couple of days, months, years. They were thinking that this would be a monument to those who come after us. And yeah. hopefully mankind has advanced to the point, as you as you said, as well as understanding 
that these aren't just stories about stones. It's about the human condition. Brother, if I can dovetail off that, uh, Brother Chris, um, on one of my Facebook pages, I've got a, a picture or an article about a couple of ancient stones. And I think I titled the article and I, I coined the phrase that I really like, uh, stones don't lie, they sit. And what I mean by that is, is, is that words and text have been edited, manipulated, and changed, but stone is the uh, symbolic and practical uh, actual embodiment of uh, truth, something that stands the, te the, the test of time. So the pyramids being oriented to the four directions and Machu Picchu and Stonehenge, these are all things that are, are permanent uh, place specifically, uh, Baalbek, place specifically uh, in certain situations to communicate stories about truth to us. Yeah, yeah uh, during my travels, uh, I noticed some of the same things. When you talk about Petra, if, you, if anybody's been to Jordan or I suggest you, if you want to make a trip or a pilgrimage in your life, Go to Georgia, I'm not Georgia, but uh, Jordan and go check out Petra. And while you're there, Jerusalem's just a hop, skip and a jump away. Wow. Might as well do that too. Uh, but uh, I got the pleasure of seeing Petra and seeing, you know, how those stones were squared back in those days in an actual Middle Eastern country. And um, one interesting fact is that Petra was a female settlement and they had a female monarchy uh, in that time uh, that were they were they were along the trade routes during the um, Alexandrian time frame where cultures cultures and things were transferring all these different information uh, that makes up some of these legends to date. Uh, other things, other places I've been like um, in Cambodia, you have Angkor Wat, another stone story. It's telling a story in stone. Uh, then you got uh, in Jakarta, you got, uh, I think it's called Bobador, Bobador Temple. It's telling a story. It's made out of volcanic ash. It tells the stories on, seriously, on three, five, and seven levels. Mm -hmm. But these are the three, five, and seven levels of heaven. Then on the bottom floor, you have what we call uh, life, but it's actually uh, samsara. And then everything above, it, it has nine levels of heaven. And on the ninth level of heaven, three, five, seven, and nine, these are where the stories were told. But on the ninth level, there is nothing but one stupa. So it's, and it looks like a point within a circle. And that's a whole nother story. But these stories and messages have been put in stone in different countries and throughout different things, uh, different locations. So there was a combined message being sent or generated through either DNA or through some, someone having contact with everybody. Yeah. You know, if you take a pyramid and look at it from the top down and spin it, it looks like a point within a circle. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, Brother Greenway uh, put the Church of Lalabella in the chat. And I, I thought that was interesting as well. When we think of the construction of those churches, 
And, you know, I made the connection with what Brother Mike Williams said earlier this week. And if you look at those churches from the top down, they form that cross he was talking about. Wow. You know, so. Yeah, they form that Templar cross. Are you talking about the ones that are underground? Yeah, the, well, that the cut, temples cut that are in. underground, but but they are, cut on out top, of rock. They, it's it's sh- yeah, cut out of rock. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it looks like it's underground, but it's formed yeah. into a cross. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And is that the name of them, the Church of Lalabella? The Church of okay. Lalabella. Yeah, I've seen some pictures you know, of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, forming Templar crosses. Uh huh. Shaped like a Templar cross, and even the underground tunnels. Um, I have showed you, you know on our back end messages on a clip where a gentleman had traveled there and he went in the underground because they have underground tunnels just like the pyramids in Egypt and he shows you like literally a nice temple the nice temple across carved into the wall so you know somebody knows something about something <laughs> yeah and we, we just see you know the use of stones and rocks all through um, you know I go back to to the Bible um, where, and this is, you know, I, I didn't want to put it in the lecture because it, it runs so far off and it's almost a whole different topic, but you know how, um, you know, you're dealing with crystals. A lot of those stones that were in the, in the, uh, priest's breastplate were actual crystals. And, you know, a lot of folks know my background was telecommunications and way back in the day, you know, age myself here, but, uh, before all these technologies, radios, the way you communicate it and you tweak the frequency on them is you oscillated a crystal. Because so, you know, crystals vibrate depending on how they're cut at a certain frequency, right? And so if you remember the um, priest would have to go, he'd have to have this plate with all these crystals in order to communicate with deity. And so I, I, I fast forwarded to Revelation. If you remember the new Jerusalem that was coming down out of the heavens, it the bottom of it was made of these same 12 stones, crystals. So it's almost like, you know, I'm like, is this some type of communication device? You know, again, this is just speculation. <laughs> Don't nobody grab this and say that I'm crazy. It's just a way of speculating. Why did he need this tool to communicate with deity? Uh, why is this New Jerusalem, this ship? Because if you really look at it, it has dimensions. So it's, it's a, it, it says it's coming out of the heaven. Let's, let's, let's demystify it, right? This is a ship. This is something coming out of the heavens. And so is this the device that keeps them in tune with it? Um, you know, again, a lot of folks don't know rocks have vibration. Rocks have frequencies to it. A lot of schools of thought use rocks. Uh, like me, I'm, I'm a, I collect crystals. You walk in my house, I got a huge <laughs> crystal in there. Um, you know, rose quartz, amethyst, um, you know, so I get into that. I didn't want to throw that into the lecture because it probably would have had me pivoting in another direction, but I did want to mention it during this time. Yes, crystals, rocks, everything have frequencies um, and tying it in to uh, good old Pythagoras. Um, and if you read up on Pythagoras and his uh, philosophy on music, and I, I think that's the actual title of the book, uh, Pythagoras's philosophy on music, it was said that philosophy, uh, he was able to make certain tones and pitches with musical instruments mm-hmm. uh, that were able to move stones just based yeah. on the frequency of, of, of certain notes. 
And I thought that was interesting how you just brought that up with crystals and uh, some of his instruments may have been made of crystal or had crystal lining and quartz and things like that of that nature to hit those specific tones and frequencies to move other rocks and other land masses. And yeah. as a matter of fact, we have a, uh, a singing bowl made out of crystal, you know, so just another part. Yeah, see, Brother Lewis, you have put in there Peter uh, equals stone. You know, again, it, it stones were used all uh, quite frequently, frequently to depict characters, one's character. I see Brother Love had put in there the elements transform stone, earth, water, air, fire. You know, it's it's at the end of the day, you can't get around um, the value of using stones as teaching methods. It's in all these systems. I'm pulling in one of the questions from the chat. Uh, okay. It says, uh, can you share the spelling on the church or slash temples being spoken of? I think that was for uh, Brother Greenway. Did yeah. The church you mentioned. Yeah, he put um, it all Garland. Yeah, I, I put it in our chat, Lala Bella. Um, I can get a correct spelling, but I know it's. Um, Did you spell it correctly in the chat? Yeah, yeah he spelled, spelled it right. Mm -hmm. I think I spelled it correctly in the chat. Let me go back. Yeah. It's uh, churches of La. Lala Bella is L A L I B E L A in Ethiopia. Yep. Uh, got another question from Brother Cook. Um, so we are to square our stones by living the tenets of Freemasonry. I guess he's asking can we square our stones by living the tenets of Freemasonry? Yes, you can. And one of the things that I wanted to, to point out is that the tenets of Freemasonry is life itself, right? It, it's, I, I, I would, I, I remember um, House used to say this all the time. He said, I ain't learned nothing new since I've been in, in Masonry. You know, House is a learned person. He's studied a lot. But I would argue that probably 90% of the things I've learned in Freemasonry about building and squaring my stone, I've seen somewhere else outside of Freemasonry. So I would say the answer to that is, yeah, the curriculum that we use in masonry to cultivate and grow and develop our characters, um, yeah, we use those to square our, uh, that curriculum to square our stone. However, people that are not masons, that same information is available to them, just not as a curriculum as we presented in Freemasonry. Would you guys say that that's an accurate statement? I would agree with that. And I would also say, um, that um, all the information that House knows and that you know and that I know and have read, we can uh, use Freemasonry as the symbol that it is to communicate what we've learned to another Freemason like the Rosetta. Let me hear it, Stone. Yeah, stone, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like the Rosetta Stone. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, sir. 
Man, uh, we got one more question that I'm seeing right now. Uh, where'd you go? Uh, how do we decipher these lessons and apply them? It sounds easy, but not many share their techniques. Brother Love, did you want so, to respond? I, I, I do. So I have two lectures on deck. One of them is uh, uh, Harry. I'm a Harry, it's not a secret. I'm a Harry Potter fan. And uh, there's lots of esoterica in Harry Potter. And so I think that's the lecture uh, that this group wants me to do. But the lecture that I'd like to do first is uh, one I have in which I, I give practical instruction and teachings on how to use alchemy through one of uh, the symbols that uh, Pythagoras used, which is the lambdoma. Hmm. And uh, I'll briefly break down the symbols, but I'll actually give exercises and things that you can do because um, like you referred to uh, uh, early in your lecture, Brother Watson, um, all systems of thought, schools of thought are basically designed to take uh, the individual, the stone, the individual from one state to a higher state. And so there's a lot of symbolism and you can read till you're, you know, uh, blue in the face uh, or slightly dark in the face. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is, is there's not a lot of practical, okay, step bit one, step two, what do I do? Um, and the lambdoma, uh, once you understand it and, and know how to use it, uh, is incredible. Uh, so I'm going to talk to Brother AK, see if I can't substitute and do that one first before I do my Harry Potter lecture, because I'm going to kill it with the Harry Potter lecture. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And, and that was a very good question that was that was asked there, because I'm I'm a big fan on practical application, you know, we can read, as he said, to your blue in the face, purple in the face, however, you can read. That's information. That's knowledge. That's light. But until you take that information and that light and apply it to your life, that means squaring your stone. Remember in the beginning of the lecture, I said this is about squaring your stone. You can read all day long, but you have to take this information and apply it uh, to yourself. So the person that asked that question, I'd love to follow up with them and maybe, you know, just depending on um where they're at in their travels like i can say well study this study this but you know you'd have to really kind of chat with them a little bit and see where they're they're at uh, we have a saying in masonry uh we say place yourself in the proper position to receive it and so you don't want to place something before someone before they're ready to receive that you know what i mean so if i knew what type of school that they were in right now we could say lean them towards this if you're not in any school study virtue Study virtues, you know, fortitude, prudence, temperance, justice. Try to incorporate virtuous thoughts, words, and actions into your life. That would be um, what I would recommend because it will provide you with balance, harmony, and equilibrium. And that's like really the goal. To build lights over there. Who is that? Sound like you're trying to build lights over there. Oh, okay. Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think um, it, it's important as well, as, as Brother Watson has said, to understand that um, in th what these 
advanced civilizations understood was the power of symbols, yeah. right? So it did not matter what native tongue you spoke, you would see a particular symbol and that had a meaning, right? So three different people could look at the same symbol and still derive the same meaning from it. So yeah. I think sometimes in, in just applying things to myself, it, it was crazy when I was younger, I would look at the Bible. I said, this stuff doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? I go, I study different things. I become a member, a member of other faiths. And by studying those things, I could come back to it and say, I know exactly what this is talking about. Isn't you know? that beautiful? It, it, I think what traps the mind and keeps it from growing and development, developing uh, or changing, and we know that change is the one thing in nature that's ubiquitous, right? It, it's just part of the uh, human experience. It's, it's part of nature, change. I think what locks people in is when they look at things as meaning just this. I've seen people argue over, you know, this apple is an apple. And then someone says, well, no, it is an apple. If you turn it this way, you know, they'll argue all day long instead of just respecting the fact that you see it this way, I see it this way. What did you learn? What did I learn? And then use the, what they learned to help each other grow. You know, that's the kind of school of thought that I want to belong to. You know, I, I, I didn't do really well in schools that were dogmatic because I'm a type of person that um, my, the way I thought 10 years ago isn't the same way I, I, I think now. Uh, I often you I often pick with Michael sometimes, and I, I say on on these shows. I remember when I first met him, I thought he was somewhat crazy. You know what I mean when he was talking about all this. I'm serious. And I said, "Where's man? Where's this guy coming from? Here he is with this Kabbalah stuff again, and blah blah blah." Now I can clearly see what he's saying and how it applies to all the other schools because now I've grown into that. But what if I'd have remained dogmatic and say, "Well, man, this guy's in left field somewhere." I'd have never seen the beauty that was in that school of thought. Right, and, and you are wholeheartedly right. No one should be the same as they were 10 years ago. I mean, like when you start living your life virtuously and living by the tenets of Freemasonry, it exudes and it passes on and it transcends you and it goes into your family, the people you're around. And essentially, that's what making a good man better is doing. You're making, not just you as a Mason, making yourself a good man better, but the men and the women that are around you, you make them better by you, by you practicing these tenets and these virtues, by deciphering, dis, excuse me, deciphering the material inside of these rituals and these books and these practices, by looking at what's going on inside of these different locations and bodies, and then you take those things and you live it on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey, that is beautiful. That is really beautiful. And just to connect with what Brother Watson was talking about earlier, um, resonance. You know, you were talking about crystals and stones. And Mike, you were talking about how uh, they used uh, frequencies and crystals to move stones and to levitate stones. Um, well, you know, we are stones and, and, and we have the ability to resonate uh, amongst ourselves, uh, which is why it's important uh, for us to uh, choose who we are around and who we are, are with, because uh, you don't want to try to be virtuous and you're hanging with uh, the virtuous.
That, that, that's beautiful. And, and, and when I look around, the one thing I love about Esoteric Lighthouse is that we're an open-minded group of individuals. Um, and a lot of people don't probably don't know this, that see us from the outside and not on the inside. We do argue. <laughs> we do. There, Man, there's some, I've seen some good ones. Uh, <laughs> you know, I ain't going to name no names. But when I say argue, meaning we have different ways we see things and we are able to continue being friends and, and, and grow our relationships and still not see eye to eye on some things. One brother will present his information, another brother present his information. And a lot of times it turns into where I got my pen and pad out trying to, you know, I'm taking notes from both sides. And if you look at the, the different brothers that are on here, you'd be surprised at how many different faiths are represented on here. You know what I mean? We got brothers that are, are from the different monotheistic religions that are out there. We got brothers that, that are not even with any of those, but we can all sit here and meet um, and use logic and reason to grow and to go back to our perspective face and, and continue to help people grow there as well. Um, and, that, and again, that's the beauty of, that I love about Esoteric Lighthouse. I feel right at home. And I don't think I've met any of you at this point in person, but I feel like I know all of you. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, we haven't met in person. Uh, some of us have, but not all of us. Um, but yeah, the, the, the arguments, man, some of them debates, you just sit back and like, like you said, Brother Watson, you got to take notes too, because like, I'm like, hey, what book you getting that from? Because I ain't heard that before. So when before we even before you see us on TV, on Facebook, anything, best believe we'd have been scuffed up by one of our own brothers before we didn't put something on Facebook. And the that's epitome the of, oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna oh, say no, the epitome no. of meeting on the level. Yeah. yeah. And we do that really well. Like I said, if some conversation I'm like, oh man, I hope that don't go in the left field, but it never does. You know what I mean? We, it's Brothers should always be able to present their information, meet on the level, and part on what? The square. The square. Yep. And with that being said, this, gonna, uh, this will conclude our live airing of Esoteric Lighthouse. And Brother John B. Love III already introduced, uh, partially introduced next month's topic. Uh, we're trying to work out the logistics on which one he's going to do, either his Harry Potter episode or his other one connecting to Pythagoras. So uh, I'm not the admin of the show. I just host it. So uh, the person in charge of that, he'll let you guys know when you see the flyer. All right. And good night, everyone.